0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson, where we speak with some of the largest security influencers in the industry about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what should be top of mind for the C suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson. And today we're talking about the risk facing organizations and economies and the response to the COVID-19 pandemic and what it takes to navigate and mitigate constantly evolving threats. With me today is James Turner, the founder of CISO Lens. James Turner is an industry analyst and for the past 15 years has conducted primary research among the CISOs and CIOs of Australian organizations. His work entails gathering, distilling and distributing information to provide evidence-based decision support to executives as they manage cyber risk for their organizations. James now works full-time for CISO Lens, a company founded with the sole intention of supporting CISOs and thereby strengthening the resilience of the economies of Australia and New Zealand. As an analyst for over a decade, he has explored topics such as frameworks for understanding organizational risk, the business impact of cybersecurity, improving information sharing and decision making, and more. He also has served as an adjudicator for the Australian government's Operation Tsunami 2019 Cyber War Games. James, welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea.
1: Thank you, Anne. It's a real pleasure to be here with you.
0: Let's start with something a little bit unique, but also really relevant to the current times. You were an adjudicator to the Australian government Cyber War and Games in 2018 and 2019. What lessons did you take away from these experiences, and how have things changed?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the Cyber War Games was an initiative uh, triggered by the CISO at the Commonwealth Department of Human Services. It's now called Services Australia. Uh, the CISO at the time was a brilliant lady, Narelle Devine. Uh, she's now the Pacific CISO at Telstra. Um, she initiated the Cyber War Games specifically as a talent identification and extension exercise. And it started off um, as the opportunity to get different Commonwealth government agencies to test their skills out um, as a way of gamifying skills extension. Uh, so the first one that I adjudicated on in 2017 was very much around getting representative groups from different Commonwealth agencies to come in and test out their ability as a blue teamer, or on the red team as a pen tester, um, and go head to head in a in a gamified environment.
0: So, how do you think that that's going to look? Those 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 games um, post COVID in cyber war games. Do you think there's going to be anything different than there was in the prior years?
1: Oh, uh, <laughs> that is such an amazing question. So. Sadly, uh, just several weeks ago, they sent out the email confirming what we all suspected, that we weren't going to be running a cyber war game this year in 2020, and they'll be resuming it next year. Sad, but you know that's just what we've got to do. Uh, so next year, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a uh, virus expert by any stretch, but it does feel like we're still going to be dealing with the pandemic for at least the next 18 months, if not longer. And that's going to have a necessary impact on how we do all of these things, um, coming together in one place uh, and the physical distancing that we're going to need to maintain, even with that kind of environment. And, you know, which cities who are potentially sending people along to participate will suddenly go into lockdown again. I think if we've learned anything from the experiences of both Melbourne, uh, Australia's largest city, which is right now currently in lockdown stage four. So people aren't allowed out of their houses for more than an hour to go exercising or shopping. Um, and New Zealand, which has just been for over 100 days without incident and has now uh, got over 100 new cases. Um, if we don't get on top of this, we're going to be dealing with this for a long time. And so the impact of that uh, on collaborative exercises that go across organizations, cross industries, I don't know. We're making this up as we go.
0: I suspect they'll have to try to think about if it, if it goes longer term. And like you, I'm not certainly not an expert on the topic or when there will be a vaccine or a vaccine available for, you know, the masses. But I suspect at some point they'll have to think about a virtual event if they can't, you know, if it continues to be delayed.
1: Yeah, well, I know there was a vendor running a Capture the Flag event uh, yesterday, and they had, I think, over 800 online participants. Um, and previously, they'd been running everyone in the same facility, Um, And this time they were going, we're going virtual. Um, I haven't had a chance to check in with them and find out how it actually went. But we're learning a lot about uh, the ability for people to do their normal work remotely now. (laughs) I think we're barely out of the beginning of this one and the impact that that's going to have at a sociological level, the way that people work. Uh, My group of CISOs right now, just this morning, they're having the discussion about um, installing agents on personally owned devices uh, and the legalities and operational logistics around that. So we're looking for different ways to enable staff to actually work from home or wherever that is for them.
0: Thinking about that and thinking, you know, some people call it unprecedented times we're living in. But, you know, we, we've we changed our whole way of life. It's not just working remotely. We're ordering goods online, maybe teaching our children at home, something we've never um, experienced before. Virtually connecting with each other, you know, much like this podcast. But. When you think about that, what are you seeing and experiencing um, that is noteworthy as the organizations and the governments shift from focusing, um, you know, when they think about reopening, when they think about economic recovery, when they think about resilience and just, as you mentioned, CISOs thinking about APIs, what else are you seeing?
1: Oh, <laughs> so, so much. And and you'd be seeing it as well, right? You know, all of all of uh, the people that I'm talking to here in Australia are the same people that you're talking to as well. Um, so you know, stop me when I start repeating stuff that you've already heard from them. Um, I think one of the the funny things, you know, and funny depends on context, obviously. But uh, in the early days of the pandemic, when we were going through lockdown, and and it wasn't a choice; everyone had to work from home. And so suddenly, all of these different types of roles where it, they could never work from home, it was inconceivable that they could work from home. And now they're working from home. Uh, so we've learned important lessons along that. Um, The ability for staff to remote in and some of the the vulnerabilities that were getting discovered a couple of weeks back. Uh, I think businesses have discovered a new appreciation for the requirements for timely patching, Um, The technical stack. uh, Budgets are becoming a massive issue. Everyone's going to be taking a haircut. Um, So here's an interesting sort of random barometer data point. Um, For the past two years when I've run a benchmark which has all been around security budgets, strategies, team size and so on amongst the Australian New Zealand community, we were doing the data collection much earlier in the year, um, typically around uh, May, June. This year we've put it off and I'm probably just going to be starting in the next week because so many organisations have had uncertain budgets um, for both their ongoing operating costs as well as IT as well as security. Uh, in some organizations, security is managing to escape the, the chainsaw, uh, but not always. So we're going to have to find new ways of protecting organizations that are facing the exact same risks that they were facing last year, as well as the additional ones from learning to operate in different ways.
0: That's going It's going to be really challenging, and you combine that, as you know, with a human talent shortage, and then you have lack of budget for tooling, you're going to have to drive – cost efficiencies and simplifications, which maybe it's a forcing function for cyber to actually, you know, take a hard look at ourselves, right, in this constant barrage of tooling we put in place.
1: I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, no one would probably point at security teams and say they've been indulgent for the past couple of years. That would be you know, a gross oversimplification. But I think they're really going to have to look at new ways of delivering. Um, we're already hearing CSA is talking about best of suite Um, in integrated stacks rather than super expensive niche products. Uh, They're encouraging their teams to think like startups and look for open source alternatives. Um, And more than anything, the recognition, exactly like you say, the shortage of staff, it's really biting now. Um, And so we're now looking at how can we go out and better evangelize across the entire IT sector to get... The entire business to get all of the technologists to actually now start caring about security in a way that they might not have before and that's on us we've done the bad job of communicating and evangelizing up until this point
0: i agree with you i think it's i think security. i said this um i don't know six or nine months ago i was giving either an interview or having a conversation like this and i I made the controversial comment that at some point in the future probably not my career lifetime But we know cybersecurity is effective when you kind of don't have a cybersecurity organization because cybersecurity is part of everyone's job.
1: Mm.
0: And you've mainstreamed it and you've made the language and the tools and the simplification so easy that the only the only thing potentially left in cybersecurity, quote unquote, is is that, you know, that those that threat hunters right, the SOC, You know, that's that's. That may or may not happen, but I think we have to democratize it, right? It just has to become part of everyone's day-to-day job and the fiber and what they think about when they go to work.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, I think you're exactly right. Um, I don't think that's controversial at all. There'll, there'll always be a place for niche specialists. But I think you know, if you look at the way that we drive and our relationship to cars, we've been dealing with cars for, what is it, over 100 years now um and they're just a pervasive part of society and it's kind of strange to me to think that our risk tolerance as a society is such that we're comfortable for two cars to approach each other at a closing speed of 200 kilometers an hour sorry i don't know what that is in miles um out on sort of rural roads and they're going to be separated by a stripe of paint down the middle of the road Um, so our risk tolerance has grown around that space but you think of all of the controls we've got. We've got societal norms in terms of the the laws of the road and how you behave yourself. And then look at the car, and pretty much everything is wrapped around a car, from indicators through to windscreen wipers, through to the brakes and so on. They're all safety and risk management devices. And technology has got to become this way as well. So it's got to become automated for people to understand that we can't just do things the way that we did years ago. Um, you know, we've been saying for years that security is everyone's responsibility we're going to have to find a new way of messaging it because we've been banging that drum for a long time and no one's paid attention.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, how does um, how do you think then we evolve into more public-private partnerships or government-private partnerships, both in-country but also in terms of, you know, cross-country collaboration? Because it's something that I think is hit and miss and, you know, it, it ebbs and flows a bit, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, you're asking all the awesomely hard questions today. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: So I think, look, this
1: one's a tough one. I think particularly as an Australian commenting around this one, because the public-private partnership side is an area where Australia is still quite immature. We've come a long way over the last five years, but I don't believe from the conversations that I'm having with colleagues around the world that we are anywhere near the capability of the U S of Canada Um, or of the UK. The huge challenge, of course, and and you know this incredibly well, is information declassification. Um, Because the private sector sees so much on the network, you know, typically they own the network and they've got so many of the endpoints on the network, they see a vast amount, but their only goal is to protect themselves so it's only really, certainly in Australia in recent years where we've seen heightened levels of collaboration and cross organization information sharing. We're getting much better at it and the pandemic's certainly been a catalyst to drive that to levels that have not happened before. But there's this chasm in communication between the private sector and the government. The private sector's been handing across information, you know, individually for years. And it's just been falling into the well of forgetfulness. And then we get the experience of like Australia did um, about two months back where our prime minister gets on national TV and says, run sustained attack from an APT, but I can't tell you who, and I can't tell you who's been impacted. And it was literally like dropping a rock into a flock of pigeons because everyone was flapping everywhere. And a lot of security executives lost about three days of time while they tried to establish, well, does it relate to me? Who was that talking about? And in times past, we might have got a call from one of the government agencies going, by the way, there's going to be an announcement, and it doesn't apply to you. And that's all they needed to be able to go to their CEOs and say, hey, we're good. Whereas as it was, I had CISOs that were watching TV and getting texts and calls from their CEOs and executive leadership team, and they were saying, is this about us? Are we impacted? And the CISOs are going, hang on, let me listen. I'm finding out as you are. So we've got some way to go in that space, but... We can't pretend that any one organization can handle it by ourselves. Exactly the same as with the cyber war games, when no individual could do it by themselves. No organization can do it by themselves. No country can do it by themselves.
0: I think that's right. And I think that we, we ha- it's another area we just have to get better. And I don't think that there's the maturity. I don't think there's any country you can point to and say, well, th- this, these, this country is doing it right I think everybody is at different maturity curves. I do think that when you have a global event like this, it's gonna gonna force the conversation and drive people to be talking to each other in a more meaningful way.
1: Yeah, and and it's one of the things that my clients have been talking about and the the work that Microsoft's been doing of starting to embed um, some of the the better data points into the baseline product. um, So that the, the organizations that have got the teams and the capability are able to start activating that much earlier. Uh, than if they'd been trying to operationalize it themselves. That's got to be the way. It's got to be built in. You know, we talk about security by design, security being baked in from the start. That's the only way it's going to work because, you know, I've got 60 organizations across Australia and New Zealand that are mature enough to have a CISO, and then there's hundreds and thousands that simply don't have the scale and the resources to do that. Um, And we need the best possible tools in their hands so that they're safe online.
0: So, so let's pivot a little. You've written that cybersecurity incidents are actually foreseeable business risks. During the pandemic, though, we've seen a lot of small, mid-sized businesses hit especially hard, and many are exploring their ways that they want, they need to go online. Can you just talk a little bit about the business risks that are unique to small and mid-sized business, and think about, you know, how they mitigate? Um, maybe some recommendations even.
1: One of the big issues that we're seeing now, and you know, you'd be seeing this exactly the same um, is the impact of ransomware. Um, it's pretty much off the hook now. Um, and some of the the data points that we're seeing, like um, oh, who was there was one of the organizations that got hit recently and they were asked for a $10 million U.S. Uh, ransom. Another organization, uh, the FBI, released their chat dialogue on the Internet and it started at $10 million, and I think they managed to get away for four and a half. You know, those are sizable sums of money. Now that's vastly more for a ransom than most organizations in Australia and New Zealand are spending on security every year. So there's a huge disproportion there. So on the one hand, we've got the fact that these events are foreseeable because they're happening and we can see them happening on a daily, weekly basis. But then there's also the other aspect of it. Well, how do you then best prepare yourself, as you know, to protect against it and then when and if it happens, and you then respond. And most small businesses just simply don't have the capability to deal with that kind of stuff. Um, and so consequently, I think we're seeing uh, more people entertaining the concept of paying their way out of ransomware, which from a moral perspective, I'm strongly against, but I'm also very mindful that, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get hit in the face. And particularly in a pandemic, when you can't afford to be offline for two months, and hope that your clients are still going to be around when you get back on your feet again. So in that particular environment, what is it that we can do as a society which is going to actually help prevent uh, these businesses from being exposed like that? And a huge chunk of it comes down to industry-wide communication, um, a unified voice coming from uh, recognized sources, uh, and uh, the ability to rely on fundamental basics, which are sound and solid.
0: One of the things we talk about a lot isn't even a security topic. It's that being making sure you can recover from your backups and having a regular backup schedule because that that. And then, as you know, using some type of strong or multi-factor authentication. Those two things. Um, and, you know, nothing is cheap and nothing is easy, but they certainly would help mitigate a lot of the ransomware damage.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Being able to. Um, and one of my clients, they said what was it? online backup is good for protecting against. Um, silly mistakes offline backup is vital for protecting against evil
0: yeah exactly um so let's talk about um the critical decisions that are going to impact Businesses, you know, thinking about the next few months and the the next six months, and even over the next year, assuming we're still in this type of situation. When you talk to to your CISOs, what are they talking about as far as critical decisions that they feel they need to make?
1: There's a lot happening right now, and I think it depends massively on the size and maturity of the organization to start off with. Classic industry analyst answer, right? It depends. I think I mentioned it before. It's this idea that. The organisation that they're defending has got all of the same risks as it did back in January. Um, Most of them are completely dependent on being online in some form to be able to operate. Um, But then a better understanding of their exposures around that and the constraints that no one had the budget that they did or that they thought that they did in January. Uh, So I I guess that's it. It's this case of heightened levels of communication. Actually, let me segue a little bit. A couple of years back when I was doing some research around the role of the CISO, uh, I was talking with one of the the more seasoned ones in my community, and he made this really interesting comment, and I've wheeled it out a lot of presentations and so on. He said, if you put a communicator, sorry, a technical person, into the CISO role, they may fail if they're a poor communicator. They will absolutely. It was just this real sharp distinction between what the role of the CISO actually is. It's not the person that knows everything and can, can, you know, go and configure everything. But it's the person that can go and have the meaningful conversations with the business. Um, I was talking to one of my clients uh, yesterday who is just finished going and doing a whole series of deep dive workshops with all of the uh, business units around operational technology. So they've got a very, very sharp understanding of every aspect of OT um, and where it depends on the IT environment. And a couple of really interesting things came out of that. The first is that they said that they are very confident that no cyber event could actually result in a loss of life. They're not saying it's impossible, but they're just saying it's very unlikely. The second feature that came out of that was they said, we're now able to go back to them with much more specific information about suggested controls. So when anything happens online, we're able to provide completely customized and boutique information for those particular business units, which they weren't able to do before. And it sounds like something that most people would go, well, of course, that's what they should have been doing. But not everyone's had the resources and the capability and so on to be able to do everything that they wished that they could do up until now. But they've realized that in this new era where they're facing resource constraints, they have to literally protect most what matters most. And that means getting out there and actually having those conversations with business unit leaders to have that deep niche understanding of what is it that the business is actually relying on.
0: I think that that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, in cybersecurity, actually, it doesn't, you know, we always think on the enterprise context. Right. But it actually impacts you, you know, in your day to day life, how you shop what you're, you know, you're ordering online. Maybe you're even ordering food online. Um, there was in the news today that one of the U.S. grocery shopping services ha- had a breach um, and records were leaked. It, it's just this ongoing thing that's kind of baked in the pie and pervasive in, in the home, even at this point in time. Given that, you know, what what is the responsibility of businesses or some of the trade-offs businesses need to make when they're thinking about security and then from an enterprise standpoint or government standpoint, productivity of the user, but, you know, keeping keeping people safe online too. How should they be thinking about it?
1: Uh, I think in this particular space, you know, it's, it is the risk management conversation and being able to, you know, making an informed decision is everything. Um, and so then understanding... You know, what is my business? Who is my customer? What is my obligation to them? Uh, what would I would, what would I wish I had said, what would I wish I could say that I had done, you know, if I ever have to appear on TV about a breach? You know, there was, a I think, a comment from a consulting firm a couple of years back. They said that every firm is now a digital firm. And, you know, yes, it is a bit of a generalization, but there's a massive truthiness to it that this is just the operating environment that we're in. So in the same way that um, you don't get to run a company without customers, you don't get to run a company without delivering value. You also don't get to run a company without actually having a very good understanding of the risks that your environment's in. And that is the ball game. A couple of years ago, in Australia, they ran uh, what they called the, what was it, a cyber health check. Um, across the 100 largest organizations uh, listed on the stock exchange. And one of the questions at the time was, does the board have someone on it who is a cybersecurity expert? And I remember seeing that particular question, and I instantly dismissed it as just big four firms trying to angle for board positions when they retired. But as the years have gone past, and as I've thought about it more, I'm going, It kind of makes sense. You know, you don't actually have to hire, you know, a cybersecurity expert per se, but there should be at least one person on the board where that is one of their fields of extreme interest. And most of my CISOs now have extended briefing sessions with the boards, but they also specifically target often one or two members on the board that show an interest in this space. And take them aside and do like extended briefings, deep dives, ask me anything sessions. So they can help raise the level of education and awareness of that board. So that person on the board then literally becomes the champion and the subject matter expert for the rest of them. So that when they're having those closed discussions, that person's able to then champion it and say, well, there are considerations here. And either they'll know and be able to advise straight on the spot or they'll be able to say, we need to be able to pull in someone else that can give us some deeper ex- you know, information around this one. And I think this is just the operating environment we're in. Um, You know, people get to play the chessboard right in front of them right there. Not the one that they had a couple of moves ago, not the one that they wish they might get in a couple of moves, but the one that they've got right now. And the one that we've got right now is that everyone's dependent on uh, cyber risk management being effective.
0: So, James, I've learned a tremendous amount from our time together if we could send our listeners off with one or two key things you'd like them to understand about evaluating cybersecurity risks, what would those be?
1: I guess the, the final point that I'd make is that none of us are in this by ourselves. You know, my organization here or over in Australia um, and New Zealand is very much around and built on the principle that all of these defenders, all of these CISOs aren't competing with each other. Yes, to an extent, they're competing with each other for talent, and there's that ongoing challenge. But the level of openness and sharing that happens amongst the CISA community, and it's not just in my community, it's around the world, is a really good indicator that the cyber risks that organization A faces are very similar to what B faces. And it doesn't matter whether they those two organizations compete directly in the private sector, cyber risk is something that they face together. So... Certainly in the banking community, we've seen this for years. The security operating centers at large banks are on speed dial with each other all the time because the attack against company A hits company B the next day. So for anyone that's thinking about how best to protect their organization and the best things they can do, actually going and talking to their peers is probably the most important step because you don't have to invent the wheel by yourself. Everyone's on this journey and we're all going down it together.
0: Well, thank you again. And I I think that when we, you know, when we think about um, how the threat landscape is evolving and a lot of what we talked about today, I guess we just need to be grateful that there are people out there who are doing, you know, diligent and really difficult work and continuing to keep businesses safe online because as many as breaches as we see, as much ransomware as we see, as you know, there's a lot more that gets protected and defended against and doesn't, doesn't turn into a big wholesale event. So thank you again for the, all of the work you do and thanks for making the time to uh, join me today.
1: Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: I invited James Turner to join us on Afternoon Cyber Tea because I'd met him previously in Australia a few times. And I was so impressed by the depth and breadth of knowledge he has, and also his relationships with with CISOs within that market and his reputation. That I knew that he could just provide a lot of context and background for our listeners. You know, when I think about the takeaways from this episode and the recording, a, a couple things um, stand out for me. Number one. Cybersecurity is a business risk decision and it should be framed in the context of what's palatable risk for your organization and and that's different for every organization so benchmarking against your peers is certainly important but you but folks are doing their best right so if you're not quite where your peer group is that's okay and that leads to the second point that that james made that i think is incredibly important is you're not alone it's a community. It's a global community. It's a local community. There are always people who are there and willing to lend a hand and help. You just have to reach out. And I want to thank our audience for listening. And please join us next time on Afternoon Cyber Team. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. Join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.